Hello, and welcome to the Finding Something Real podcast. My name is Tara Catherine, and I am the assistant of Janelle Wood, the host of this podcast. Today, we are replaying one of our favorite episodes with Cynthia Beaudry and Drew Berryessa from April 27th of last year. Cynthia shares what it was like for her to reconcile the biblical view of homosexuality with having two mothers. Drew shares his personal experience with sexual brokenness and how his life changed when he encountered the gospel. They suggest ways that Christians can respond to Pride Month, whether or not God is as judgy as Christians may be, and more. This episode addresses a few sensitive topics, but we hope it will be life-giving for you. If you have found this podcast to be helpful, we would love for you to consider supporting Finding Something Real. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, after having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Well, why do Christians say that they accept Jesus, but judge everyone more than Jesus did? Or do they? That's the big question we're going to be tackling today. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And this season, we're talking each month with young women about their unique faith journeys and inviting them to ask hard questions regarding Christianity. And this month, we are featuring our guest and occasional co-host, Kasten. Um, She was here earlier this month sharing about um, her own struggles with tremendous loss, mental health uh, struggles, and an unsuccessful suicide attempt that ultimately led her to a place of brokenness before God. She was the first in her immediate family to come to Christ, and she also shared about some good and bad experiences that she's had in the past few years with other Christians. And now, as a college student who is passionate about advocacy, compassion, and empathy, for those who themselves maybe feel broken. broken. In fact, I think she talked basically about a burden for those suffering with their mental health or women finding themselves with an unplanned pregnancy or those questioning their sexuality and not feeling accepted by others. We talked around all those different issues because she's very passionate about them and she herself has experienced hurt. Um, unfortunately, Kasten couldn't be here for this conversation today. Um, she definitely wanted to be here, but I wanted to bring a couple of very compassionate, uh, Jesus-loving people on here today to engage this very real but nuanced discussion. 
uh, because I believe her question about why are Christians judgier than Jesus um, <laughs> is a question that is being asked especially by young people today, uh, whether you like it or not. And I'm really glad that Kasten brought it up. And in all fairness to the question, I've been in the church pew when pastors address some of these topics that she mentioned. Um, and sometimes empathy, it just feels like it's completely missing. And uh, sometimes it's there, but I, I definitely hear what she's saying. So I knew we needed some big guns for this one. And therefore, <laughs> I invited one of my favorite returning guests and his co-leader in ministry to join us today, Drew Berryessa and Cynthia Beaudry. Welcome to the podcast. Yay, it's so Yay. good to be here. Thank you so much. It's so good to be back and so good to bring Cynthia along this time. I know. So how long have you guys known each other? How did this happen? Was she part of your ministry before? And I just didn't see your website very well. I, I mean, tell me. Well, um, Cynthia, I'll let you tell your introduction to how we got to know each other. But Cynthia is, um, she's on staff with me at Living Letter. Uh, she was on staff for a brief time uh, a couple of years back and then took, like, we all had things in our life that kind of made it so we had to do different things. But then I snatched her back and <laughs> and now she's not ever it's leaving me snatched. again. Don't leave me, Cynthia. <laughs> no, in and, fact, um, we're working on getting a little bit closer because yes. I'm currently in Alabama and he's in Southern Oregon. So. Oh, so yeah. are you moving to Alabama or is she moving? To oh, Alabama? no, no, <laughs> no, girl, no, no, I'm not moving to Alabama. That sounds like judgment. It's uh, not judgment. I, I, I do not like the humidity. I, my yes, hair frizzes. And the like allergies. The, and yes. the allergies. And my, my, my white Afro hair goes big <laughs> in the South. So we're not, we're not going to inflict that on anybody. No, um, it's okay. My hair no, looks better plus, in Oregon anyway. Yeah. And, and Cynthia and her husband, Brian, were a part of the ministry I was a part of before doing, uh, starting a living letter, Portland Fellowship in Portland, Oregon. And so that's where we met. Mm, yeah. Yes. So you're familiar with the Portland uh, culture because it is different than I would guess Alabama would be. And Southern Oregon. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, yep. yeah, I moved to to Portland to do ministry at the Portland Fellowship, and that's where I met Drew. And um, that was in 2008, I think. Yep. So it's, yep. We, we, we go way back. We go we way do. back. We have a lot of history, but it's good history. And now working together, I mean, it's just a blast. We just... We just love Jesus together. We try to we try to love Jesus together well. So yeah, it's, it's good. That's yep. awesome. Well, you both are part of a Living Letter Ministries. Mm -hmm. um, the mission, in part, according to your website, Drew and Cynthia, is to build up the church to understand and respond to the issues of sexual brokenness from a fully biblical foundation, equally rooted in truth and love. Um, so, Drew, let's start with you. You've been on okay. here before. Yep. Why this mission? Um, I know you've shared about your story before on this podcast, but I know some listening may be unfamiliar with who you are or your story. So I'd love for you to share briefly what yeah. drew you to starting this work. Well, what drew me to starting this work was my own struggle with my sexual orientation and finding no real place in the in the body of Christ, in the local church, where there was resource, help, understanding, empathy, all of the above. And hearing the topics of, of like the LGBTQ person or community in the church always, always carried with it either ignorance or fear or judgment. And, you know, people always say, you know, Jesus loves the sinners, a friend of sinners. But when you ran into you know, the expression of sin that looked like mine or my struggle. I, I never heard a redemptive voice. I just heard 
condemnation or judgment or, or just this lens that they were so much, it was they versus us. And, and so when I moved to Portland back in uh, 1990, I think nine, uh, found the ministry of a Portland fellowship, which was specifically for discipling men and women with this struggle and going there and experiencing uh, just encounter with Jesus that helped reframe my struggle in a way that was not, um, wasn't condemning, you know, it was convicting, which is a huge difference in the church where we are convicted over, over our sin or over our rebellion or over whatever else is not, you know, what, what Christ is calling us to is a far different uh, position to start in than condemnation because condemnation just left, leaves you feeling completely helpless and rejected and hopeless. Conviction gives you kind of volitional will to say, do I engage with this or not? Mm-hmm. And, you know, experiencing a really transformative experience there. Um, and then being in ministry there for over 10 years, seeing the cultural shifts that we're experiencing now, recognizing that there may come a day sooner than later when the local church is the only place someone with my struggle will be able to go to find help and, and restoration and healing and, and just truly a true presentation of the gospel. So my mission shifted back in 2015 to equipping the local body to be the, the place where Christ is evident to those who deal with sexual brokenness issues. So that's, that's in a nutshell who I am. Mm, That's amazing. Cynthia, how about you? Um, yeah, so I'm born and raised in the Bronx. So if I say something that's colorful, (laughs) please don't, don't hold it against me. Okay. (laughs) But this is real talk. And, um, I was raised by two moms, my birth mom, drug addict, my, my dad murdered. And so I, I was raised in the gay community. And for me, that was a better option than a lot of other things that I could have been raised in. Mm-hmm. So I had two moms. It was my grandmother and her partner. And this was in the 80s. So this was like, wow, <laughs> they were real <laughs> progressive for that time and age. But being uh, a part of the gay community, having two moms, that was normalized for me. I didn't see anything wrong in it. Mm-hmm. And um, until I got saved <laughs> and started reading the Bible and was like, wait, hold up. <laughs> You mean my family's going to hell? Oh, <laughs> I was wow. like, wait, hold on. So I had became a Christian, and I was so on fire, loved Jesus, and I realized the severity of my sin and was just going to fling myself at his mercy and was so grateful for salvation. And so I went back to my my two moms, to my, my two gay moms, and, and sorry if I refer them to that. It's just for context because I got three moms. Um, I went back to my moms and was like, you guys are going to hell. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and that did not that did not fly over well at all right. and that was not wise or loving no. but also i was a baby christian and i was very zealous and i also knew the i knew the reality of hell because i, I was i had just been saved from it yeah and so I, I i decided to have conversations with the lord because i was like you know what they just kicked me out of the house with the bible um so how am i supposed to evangelize and love them <laughs> yeah. and so i began a journey to uncover uh, a, a way or um, just a, a strategy to win my family over for Christ. And so that's what brought me to a Portland fellowship where I met Drew because I thought, listen, listen, I thought I was going to fix the gaze. Mm. And when I got there, I realized that I needed to be fixed. And the more I looked into the healing process, the more I realized that I needed it for myself. And so mm. I was able to apply um, just the truths and um, the healing process in acknowledging that I, that we're all on an equal playing field, that all sin right. separates us from God. And uh, I met Drew, and I, re- I remember meeting him, and we just, 
I mean, we just clicked and I, I realized that I can't fix the gaze, that my responsibility is to allow the Holy Spirit to fix me. Mm-hmm. And in that, I, I just want to love people well. I want to love my moms well. And um, and that looks a lot different than <laughs> when I was 20 years old. And I'm right. grateful for that. <laughs> wow. Wow. I want to ask a couple follow-up questions to that. So how did you become a Christian? Yeah, I, you know, just because, you know, in the gay community was normalized doesn't mean I didn't have a lot of questions. And I I didn't know where to go with my questions until I met Christians, kind of like what we're doing today here, which I appreciate the openness and the receptibility to be able to have these conversations because that's that's what brought me to know the to know the Lord and to know Jesus was I needed a place to bring my questions where it was safe and um, and you just wondering just about can God heal broken sexuality is that real is transformation real it, does it apply is it relevant and um, and coming into the church just meeting a lot of Christians it took a long time to chip away at the the walls in my heart. But there was consistent love and there was consistent truth. And eventually I was like, you know, I've tried, I tried a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) Really, that's the bottom line of it. It was like, I haven't tried Jesus. I've tried a lot of things. And I want to give this guy a chance and and see if it works out. Because at that point, I had nothing to lose. And um, he rocked my world. He did. And um, I'm just so grateful for the questions I had that led me to the cross, that led me to him and still finding trying to find answers to some of these questions but we do it together and we do it as a family and Mm. and there's a place for all of us so obviously there might be somebody listening right now who hasn't made that decision uh to give their life to christ maybe i mean i i talk to people on here a lot who are like uh you know i'm thinking about it but i'm not really sure um and like you said you hadn't (laughs) you tried everything else what did you find in jesus that you didn't find elsewhere he kept his promises mm-hmm. there was nothing that he said that he ne- that he didn't bring to pass he was true to his word and uh i had i had met a lot of people and had, had you know um adopted a lot of ideologies that that they didn't you know they didn't complete they didn't they didn't follow through and he was the one person that followed through for me he was faithful to me to love me when i was yet a sinner and there was a lot of people in a lot of situations that didn't and so when I encountered that, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to cling to the hem of his garment. I'm never going to let go. And mm. I pray that I don't. Yeah. How mm. long ago was that, Cynthia? So, um, I'm 41. So. <laughs> <laughs> don't say it, Cynthia. When don't I was 20, <laughs> about 21 years ago. It stuck for 21 years. That's pretty yes. good. That's pretty yeah, awesome. good. Yeah. So what's your relationship like with your moms now? You know, I wondered because of the the relationship that they had at, at towards the end, and I'll give you why it was the end, um, was more of an emotional and practical one. My grandmother was very sick, and I just I just was looking and asking God, like, how are you going to apply your healing in this situation? My grandma needs her partner. Mm-hmm. There there was that was the best option for her, right. and um, and God kept, you know, Acts 16, verse 11, believe in the Lord and you shall be saved, you and your household. And that's the the, the verse that I cling to. And I said, well, how are you going to do this? Mm-hmm. Because my grandmother is very sick and this is just a practical relationship. They, you know, at the end, it wasn't very, it wasn't sexual at all. Yeah. Excuse me. But um, my grandmother got, was very ill and towards the end of her life, on her deathbed, she received Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, this is how you did it. Mm. This is how you did it. I could not even in my mind's eye imagine the way he would unravel his plan, his good plans for my family and for me. And um, my grandma's partner, I call her mom. And so she's my mom now. She's mom number one on my phone. (laughs) (laughs) And we went from having a relationship that was, you know, just really strained and she felt judged and rightly so. But now um, she walked me down the aisle because I don't have a dad. She walked me down the aisle and I remember just her looking at my face and was, she was like, were you sick before before I got here? And I was like, yes, how'd you know? And then I realized because she raised me because she's my mom. Mm-hmm. And um, we have a beautiful relationship today where she she acknowledges Jesus and she's working out her salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I get to be a part of that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Man, well, you both have incredible stories. And Drew, I know you just skimmed the surface. If you're listening <laughs> yeah, to this, you haven't heard him share his incredible testimony either. Uh, We'll link those episodes in the show notes. But I wanted to tell you guys a story. So a while back, I was giving a talk. Mm -hmm. And after I was done speaking, um, it was to a group of women, a very kind and bold Christian woman came up to me and said, you know, during your talk, you mentioned so-and-so who you said is gay and a Christian. And uh, what gives? And to this lady's credit, it was an honest question, uh, but it kind of took me aback because I had just mentioned this person during my talk in passing, just a quote. And I had to explain that this person I had quoted in a one-hour talk was same-sex attracted and not in an ongoing homosexual relationship. But later I thought, what if he had been? Mm. Um, I know there are pastors out there who are teaching you can't be Christian and gay, that sexual sin other than the garden variety of pornography or lust or sleeping with someone who's of the other gender but not your spouse, that there are sins that are somehow greater and more perverse than anything else. My question to you guys is, is that biblical? And I'm sure that you've dealt with this question. Oh, yeah. Cynthia, do you want to take a crack at this? You want me to start? You know what? Go ahead. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and P.S. I just want to say to this woman who might be listening to this podcast because I, you know, encouraged Mm -hmm. her to. uh, No judgment. I know that this question came out of a real, like, genuine curiosity. Absolutely. Uh, But, yeah, I was taken aback. I want to know how you guys would respond. Absolutely. Well, I think that one of the first things to clarify is that, you know, all sins, all sins separate us from Jesus. And therefore all sins require the same amount of the blood of Jesus to forgive and to redeem. And, you know, when we, when we talk about sexual sin, clearly that as Paul says, sexual sin is different than other types of sins, other types of sins, you know, you sin outside of yourself, but sexual sin, you sin against your own body. And I think that there's a lot of neurological and and memory and, you know, a lot of different implications of that. So sexual sin is different consequentially, but it's not worse. It's not more heinous. It's just more consequential, which should inspire more grace and more understanding from the church, not more judgment. Because if someone, like I say this almost every time I go speak somewhere, if I steal a cookie from a cookie jar, it is pretty darn easy to make that right. If, you know, if I rape someone or, or you have premarital sex and get someone pregnant, like those consequences, they don't go away. And, and for those who have walked in sexual sin or, you know, have, have had a sexuality outside of what God's creative intent is, and that might be a more gracious way to say it, but not, you know, then there are deep consequences, not only for the impact of those sins, but then 
how to live out surrender to Jesus when you've steeped your life in that. It's difficult. And so to the issue of, can you be gay and a Christian? Well, can you be a gossip and a Christian? Can you be uh, an adulterer or uh, someone addicted to pornography and come to know Jesus? Yes, because we all start as a sinner and come to Jesus. And sometimes there are issues, not sometimes, every time there are issues in the lives of believers that aren't the top priority list issue for Jesus when you come to salvation. We are in the process of sanctification, which is progressive. And, you know, some of the things that we might, as the world, see as externally more important are not the things that Jesus wants to address first in the life of a person who comes to him. Maybe, just maybe, he wants to earn their trust and earn their fidelity and earn their allegiance before big, huge issues like sexual identity or sexual orientation or gender identity come up for him that will require a lot of depth of relationship and a lot of trust in his character and some firmly established connections within the body of Christ that are gracious, loving, kind, and supportive to address. And so, yes, someone can be a Christian and be gay. Um, but what I would say to any sin and any person coming out of any uh, background is that when we come to Jesus, we understand or we, we grow to understand that Jesus has the authority to define us and Jesus has the authority to redefine us. And so, if we happen to be holding on to an identity that is maybe from our former way of life, all I would say to that person is be ready for Jesus to confront that. And if he does, will you surrender it? Uh, I know there was a point in my life where the Lord, you know, I was holding on to a gay identity, not because I wanted it, but because I felt like I was, that is who I was because that is what I had done. And that is what I felt. And when Jesus began to confront that identity, not to shame me, but to free me and to, and to give me something better, um, that was life-giving for me. Not every Christian is going to be at that spot quite yet. And so even though I might look at it and say, that's not where I'm at, I think that sometimes as we are walking with Jesus and surrendering in that progressive sanctification, working our salvation out with much fear and trembling, there are things that are like permissible, but not necessarily the best for us, which I think any identity in any sin or any category, um, we don't have to identify ourselves other than his son or daughter. And so ultimately, I think that's the goal. But, um, and even I'll say this and then I'll shut up and let Cynthia talk. Um, I think that there are things that when we are dealing with sin struggles in our life, I think there's a very different um, understanding sometimes that we can come to where someone who is embracing and calling good and right a behavior or a life that the scripture directly addresses, uh, that's saying that this is not what God wants for us, therefore sin, then we, we have to challenge those things and not out of judgment, but out of love for the person who is attempting to follow Jesus and walk with Jesus. So it just becomes a discipleship issue. Um, but I also think that there are things that we have to look at and if we're struggling with something, if we are, you know, we know what's, what God is calling us to, but we don't always meet the mark of that. We don't always live out that perfectly, which is every Christian, by the way, um, for those who are called out of gossip, you know, they will sometimes say, Ooh, girl, I got some tea to spill. And you're like, mm, no, <laughs> you know, you got to surrender that. Um, I think with this, you know, people have different understandings of their identity and, Maybe it's not quite in that discipleship process yet where that identity is up for grabs by Jesus or submitted to the authority of Jesus. And maybe it won't ever be in their lifetime. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not saved. 
what is the trajectory of the life? Are they walking towards Jesus? Are they willing to allow Jesus to redefine them and to challenge the things that they're holding on to and willingly surrender them if, if the Lord calls them to? Um, that's really the quality of a Christian is, am I following you? And am I laying down the things that you tell me to lay down the moment you tell me to lay them down? Um, you know, as, as much as we might even say to someone, this is sin, you know, this behavior is sin. Well, if they don't have a revelation of that from the Holy Spirit, it might go in one year and out the other. But can I, we agree that Jesus is Lord? Can we agree that he has authority to speak to your life? Now, can I help you learn the word and learn what it says and learn the discipled. voice of the Holy Spirit and disciple you and let the Lord be the one who cleans you up and forges your identity and not superimpose what my priority list might be because, uh, because of my own experience. So, yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. Cynthia, anything you want to add to that? Um, we were, we were talking about the hierarchy of sin and how it doesn't exist the other day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and just the, the truth that there are different consequences and, and long lasting consequences. Like Drew, I think you mentioned, you know, Adam and Eve. <laughs> yeah. There's some long lasting consequences some long for last- sin. Yes, Good exactly. Lord. <laughs> mm. Um, so Gonna we do some words someday with them. <laughs> <laughs> we do acknowledge, we do want to acknowledge that, um, like you said, consequentially that there are differences, but there is no hierarchy of sin that doesn't mm. exist. Um, and for me, that was important because just seeing my two moms coming to become a, coming to know the Lord and becoming a Christian, I, I, I knew he had worked a, a transformation work in my life, but I didn't know he could do that for anyone else. Mm. And, um, and I remember that, you know, struggling with, um, just the disgust that people had when they found out mm. I had two moms or, um, just a disregard that they had because, you know, God could heal from, you know, broken marriages and drug addictions, but could God really put his finger and heal the sexually broken? And that's um, one of the things that I, I wanted to, to discover for myself, but then also because the people that I loved the most in life were sexually broken. And, um, and I didn't like the way the church was dealing with that. And I struggled with that. That was a big, big stumbling block for me um, because of the heart of compassion and the heart of justice um, for my moms. I wanted to advocate for them and I wanted to to be on their side. And, and so I, there was a lot of tension that I had to work through in that. And I think that that's okay. Um, but, but yes, um, no hierarchy. Mm. Yeah. So going directly to what you just said, um, this idea of wanting to love and advocate for people that you see are on the outside, like feeling uh, what you can see, which is judgment or, you know, disapproval or you're not, you don't belong, you don't fit in. Um, I see what I see a lot, especially on social media is a lot of young people, maybe who grew up in church being like, uh, yeah, that's ugly. I'm going to now embrace uh, the pride movement. I'm going to uh, share about uh, God's love and about how he loves all colors of the rainbow. And uh, let's shout uh, who you are because that's who God made you, right? So there's almost a pendulum shift Mm -hmm. of like this rebellion against, wow, that was not loving the way that people have been treated historically um, around this issue. And so uh, let's just embrace it because God is love and a good God wouldn't um, wouldn't do that, right? So it's... 
it's completely a different way. So how do you respond to that? Because I think, you know, Kasten's not here right now, um, but I've seen what she's posted on Instagram a few times, right. and I think she's okay with me sharing. And I, I, I know that we talked um, at the beginning of the month, but, you know, she's an advocate for these people in that same way. Like what, what, what they feel, what they want, like let's advocate for that. Um, so how do you deal with the tension? And yeah. how do you acknowledge the hurt um, and still, and the love in the midst of, and, and the truth? I mean, tell me what you guys do. Tell me how you do it. Cynthia, you want, you want to start? Or? Sure. I, I, yeah, I can. I just want to affirm just um, God's heart in, in the people who find themselves wanting to be advocates and be mm. a voice for justice. That is a holy thing. That is yeah. something that God has placed into the hearts of men and women. And so I just want to affirm that that's a beautiful quality. Um, for me, it's it's actually engaging the Holy Spirit and asking Jesus, what does it look like to advocate and to be um, and to be a, a partner and supporter? What does it look like in you, Jesus? Not mm -hmm. not the way that the, the world necessarily um, demonstrates this, but how does the Holy Spirit demonstrate this? Because I want to partner mm -hmm. with you, Jesus. Because ultimately, transformation and truth is from Christ. Right. And so just asking God, engaging Him, and saying, how do I love my two moms? I, I did it wrong. I did it wrong. I, I don't want to do it wrong. I want to advocate. I want to support. How do you do that? How do, how do I walk that out? And, and that's a process of relationship with Jesus. But I do want to, uh, I do want to affirm that that is a beautiful and holy quality. Mm. So good. I think that I would write add right into that and say that a good example scripturally of how the Holy Spirit addresses that very sort of scenario we can see in Jesus and Jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, because, you know, you have a person who by all accounts for, from a Jewish perspective would have been socially outcast would have been um, the, one of the untouchables or unspeakable people, even, even within her own culture in the Samaritan culture, she was going to the well at the height of the, the the noonday sun, where no women were going there at that time, she was going to strictly avoid contact with the other women because she was a sexually sinning woman in that culture. So, um, you know, Jesus, of course, in the divine appointment and the divine grace and the divine uh, pursuit that he had of the hearts of the broken showed up at this well. And not only did he put himself in proximity to where this woman would be, but he treated her with dignity and respect that was so unusual to her culturally that she literally asked him why. So he addressed her asking for a drink of water from the well. And she stopped like, what are you doing talking to me, a Jewish man to a Samaritan woman? So the equivalent of that, I think culturally would be like, you know, if, if you as a pastor or as a, you know, a, you know, very, very deliberate believer in Jesus might be you know, I know very many people in the, in the church who are like are so far removed from what they would view as the, you know, the broken world or community. We get so wrapped up in our own bubble. Like if you won't, don't have a friend in the gay community, if you don't make space and time in your life to invite the people over for dinner, that, that people would look at you go, why are you associating with them? Then you're not acting like Jesus. Mm -hmm. So breaking down those, those barriers and the, the lack of intentionality towards a community that has experienced a great deal of rejection and judgment from the body of Christ, just like the Samaritan woman had, 
if we're not treating them in such a way that they stop and go, why are you a Christian being so kind and so invitational and so empathetic and so gracious to me, then we're not acting like Jesus because that's exactly what he did, but he didn't stop there. And that's where the pendulum, I think that you're describing Janelle, that we are seeing in culture and in the church and in a lot of the, the you know, theological beliefs that are emerging in the church today are trying to correct course from that judgment to the loving and gracious response. But that also is not a reflection, a, a, a right reflection of Jesus. It's incomplete. It's focusing on his grace, mercy, and love, but we can focus on individual attributes of God and still get a distorted picture because we're not looking at the whole of him. And he was holy and he was righteous and he was a just a judge. And when Jesus held those two things in tension, it looked like his interaction with her at the well, where he engaged her with dignity and respect and did not let those social barriers prevent him from showing her uh, the respect and dignity that a human being should have. And, you know, had interaction and conversation with her. And then when she, you know, engaged with him and said, you know, he asked, well, you know, go get, go get your husband so we can, you know, we can talk. And she said, I don't have one. And he rightly said, you're right. You've had five. And the man you're currently with is not your husband. What you say is true. He called out the, the inconsistency and the sin in her life without condemning her. He just called it what it was. And in the context of the conversation, she was at the well going for water. He was asking for a drink. She said, you know, why do you ask me? Then he said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink of living water that would spring up in you. He wasn't really talking about water in case anyone doesn't catch that. <laughs> he was talking about the thirst of her soul to be loved and accepted. And he was directing that thirst right back to her, right back to him, saying that the thing that is motivating you towards these relationships that will not satisfy. And just like this, well, you'll drink from it, but you'll thirst again, just like those husbands. If you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for living water, which is spring up in you because only I can satisfy the needs of your soul. So that's, that's truth and love together. That's calling out the sin and the broken ways we try to meet those spiritual, emotional, relational, even sexual sometimes needs and not understanding that Christ is actually the source. And when we redirect back to Jesus the, the, as the source and we put the things down that are, that are not worthy of that, you know, that's what truth and love calls us to. You can see it in his, his engagement with the woman caught in adultery where he addressed her with dignity and respect, which was not what she was being given, saved her from the condemnation of death called out the people that were ready to do that saying, if you are without sin, go ahead and, and, and stone her to death, knowing fully, he was the only one that actually had the authority to do that. And instead of doing that said, you know, where are your condemners? You know, they've all gone. Then neither do I condemn you, which is love. Now go and sin no more saying, it's not that I'm saying that your sin was acceptable. It wasn't, but mercy and grace intersects judgment and it triumphs over judgment and go and don't do this again, because this one time almost got you killed. So don't do that again. Like that's, that's the marriage of truth and love where we, we come humbly and because we are not Jesus, although we are aspiring to be like him, hopefully we, we are not sinless. We don't have any right to judge or to condemn, but we do have the empathy to understand, if not for the grace of God, I would be exactly in your situation. And I know I struggle with sin 
and I have to make repentance in my life for big and little things all the time. And so when I come to people, I come humbly, very aware of my dependence on Jesus, very aware of what he has delivered me from, very aware of my need for his Holy Spirit to, to sustain me as that living water so that I don't go thirst after other things. And if we come from that place of humility, hopefully um, it, it strikes a chord. And I know that right now in our culture, we have a lot of, we have cancel culture. We have a lot of inability to be in disagreement. And honestly, I think that is just a reaction to the fact that we have not been gracious. We have not been loving. And it's going to take a lot more than just a few interactions to prove that we are not standing in con condemnation. We, and we don't get to take offense to the rejection of truth when truth has been used as a weapon. So we have to understand that and be much more persistent, gracious, forgiving, and, um, and, and continue to act as Jesus did. Really good. Uh, a question popped up in my head that is not on my notes and I'm just going to go rogue here. You told me you trusted me, but it's, it's in my head. I want to ask, and it's, um, it's kind of a practical question Yeah. for either of you. Um, have either of you seen the chosen? Oh yes, we love the chosen. Okay, I love, love the chosen. The chosen. <laughs> yes. Wait, do you love the chosen? I love the chosen. Oh. You know, like the very first scene when you see Jesus, right? He's mm. in the bar. He's yes. in the bar, and he comes up, and that's one of my favorite scenes. He puts his mm. hand on Mary's, and he says, "That's not for you." Yep. Um, and you know, some people didn't like that—that that Jesus would be in a bar. Do you think Jesus would be at a gay pride parade? Well, if we actually believe our own theology. <laughs> that God is omnipresent. There it is. <laughs> then not only is he at the gay bar, the gay pride parade, the the room where people are having gay sex, he is also friend right where you are sitting too. He is right there in the moment. He is with Thank us in the bathroom when we're going to the Thank bathroom. There is not anything hidden from his eyes or his presence whether or not we acknowledge it. So, yes. Yes, Jesus is in the gay bar. Yeah. Yes, Jesus is in the worst place because as the amazing quote from The Hiding Place, Betsy Ten Boom, there is no pit, Corey. no dark pit. Well, I thought it was Betsy. It's her sister. She was the more godly one at the beginning. That? Did Betsy say that and Betsy Corey said like that. usurped it? No, she quoted no, her. No, Corey oh, in the beginning, she was so this. angsty. I mean, all right, rightly so. Oh, there it is. I've I'm got standing. Corey Ten Boom right here. Right Come on, Corey Ten Boom. Okay. She's the anyway, best. Betsy, they were both good. Go ahead. They were you both great. It's a great quote. Them. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're great because, you know, Cynthia Cynthia wrote this great article for for uh, Force of the Portland, Portland Fellowship. And then for us, that is like, y'all, everyone in the whole world needs to read what Cynthia send wrote on this. Send me a link. I will send you a link. But, you know, Betsy, you know, you want to tell this because you were saying it. Betsy was the less, the, the more godly one. Well, she know? was in the beginning. I mean, obviously, they, they both wrestled through stuff. But Betsy had a, she had a different spirit about her, which yeah, I did. always related to Corey because I was like, you know what? If I'm in this camp and there's fleas all over me, I'm just going to be just as miserable and angsty and, and have an attitude just like Corey did. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the beauty is that Corey transformed and, you know, just her relationship with Jesus skyrocketed after her sister died, unfortunately, before her. But yeah, what was the quote that you were bringing up? Who, me? Yeah, yeah it about was, Betsy. It was the, um, there is no pit so deep or dark that God's love is not deeper still. You know, it's like, I think it was Betsy was being questioned by a woman in the concentration camp saying, you know, you keep, you keep referencing this good God, but, you know, 
explain where we are. Exactly. If, if mm-hmm. you know, there's such a good God and Betsy's response being, you know, I don't know, this is not the work of God. This is the work of evil men, but maybe I'm here to display for you that there is no pit so deep, so dark mm-hmm. that God is not deeper still. And so if we believe that, then of course, Jesus is at the gay pride parade. Of course, Jesus is at the gay bar. He's not endorsing it. Like he does not endorse. He does not endorse your sin, dear pastor, who is secretly addicted to pornography. You know, he does not endorse that sin or cheating on your wife or going to male prostitutes. Lord, listen, we we had to get so many judgments of our own. We did. We were like, man, there's a long list. There's such a long list. I mean, because unfortunately, we as Christians that are are trying to be faithful to walk out our life in love for Jesus, we get judged because of the hypocrisy of other um, believers in the church. Yeah, in the church. And so we were having a discussion before we got in here about right, right. And so it, it, it's that truth that Jesus is not endorsing your sin, but don't think for a moment he's not there with you because that still small voice of conviction that hits us when we are sinning is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the presence of God that is always pursuing our hearts, no matter where we are. Mm-hmm. So it's just, we got, we've gotten such into this place of self-righteousness, thinking that Jesus is as self-righteous as us, but it's, it's the, it's the opposite. And I'm going to rant for a minute because you opened the door, Janelle. So it's I your know, fault. I'm sorry. It's the, it popped into my head. I couldn't it's a, not box. That was the Holy Spirit. We're just going to blame him for a minute. So it, there's a, you know, Deborah and Alan Hirsch wrote some incredible books. Um, one called untamed and it's, you know, this vision of, of discipleship that's profound. And they talk about the Holy Spirit and they talk about how there's this understanding of the Holy Spirit that can be rightly understood as the sanctifying spirit. Whereas we, and even like the Pharisees and the first century Jewish culture viewed like purity and cleanliness in this regard that don't touch the unclean thing or you will be made unclean. But the Holy Spirit as demonstrated in the life of Jesus was the exact opposite. He went to the unclean thing and by his presence, he made it clean. He went to the sick and made them well. He made the, he went to the dead and brought them to life. He was not made unclean by engaging with the unclean thing. He brought the the presence and the purity and the sanctifying reality of God to the unclean thing. So if you don't think Jesus can't be in a gay bar, of course he can. It does not, God is not threatened by the sin and the defilement and the brokenness of this world. He brings his presence to restore and redeem to the broken, to the dirty places, because it's Jesus himself who said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. It is the sick. Yeah. So Jesus demonstrated this all the time when he ate with sinners, when he, when he touched the, the leper, when he, you know, brought the dead back to life. It, he was not threatened by the, the brokenness or the sin. In fact, honestly, if we truly were to believe that Jesus would not be in a bar, then we are giving him equal or less power than the devil. And we don't live in the sense where yin and yang, the power of good and evil are equal and just who will win. <laughs> we don't, no, 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 no. Jesus triumphs all the time. And Jesus is not afraid of the demons. Jesus is not afraid of the filth. And if he were, he never would have become flesh and made his dwelling among us. Okay. Follow up question to that. So maybe there's a Christian listening right now. Who's like, Drew, you are right. I'm mm. convicted, right? And June is coming up and I'm going to go to a gay pride parade and I'm going to have one of those signs that says free hugs for everyone, right? Something like that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
all of a sudden there's this fear. What would my church think? Am I endorsing the sin if I go and I do that? Uh, what would my pastor who's preached about uh, this being a horrible thing? Would you speak to that? Because that has to come up in your ministry too. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Cynth- These Cynthia, aren't new wanna... questions. I know they're not. I think I'm no. too angsty to answer that. You go, Drew. Okay. I'll speak for us. And I'm angsty too. He's on a roll. He's on his But I'm on a roll. I want to hear you. This is the third time's the charm. Third time's the charm. So um, I think that there's a couple of things that I would say to that, because I know that there are a lot of Christians that, and even those, I think probably, you know, very, this will resonate very deeply, I think with some of them aware. Yeah. Our reaction is to want to, um, to, demonstrate the opposite spirit that has been from the church to the gay community. And I'm all for that as long as we don't also abandon the holiness, the righteousness, and and the, the truth of God. And it doesn't mean that we go and say free hugs, but by the way, you're sinning. You know, it's like, no, there, there's going to be some work that has to be done to earn the right to confront things. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a speaker an author with a very similar testimony to mine and, and in the field of ministry that Cynthia and I represent, her name is Rosaria Butterfield, and she's written a couple of great books. One of the things that she says, which I think is wildly instructive to the church is strong words require strong relationship. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to speak, you know, conviction to a identity and a life that is incredibly consequential, then we can't do it flippantly. Like, cause if we stop and consider what it means to the post-surgical transsexual to surrender their life to Jesus, I mean, my God, how much struggle and pain and consequence and, and, you know, process that comes with that. If they are then to surrender their life to Jesus and Jesus says, I want you going back to the gender I made you. And we, we know friends that have gone through this. We've worked with people in ministry a shoulder to shoulder that will tell you, you know, one person in particular, our friend, Kathy Grace, who it took five years for her to pass as a woman physically from the time she surrendered her identity and her sexuality and her gender identity to Jesus. That is consequential. Mm-hmm. Like, so, you know, by all means, yes, go to the gay pride parade, go give out free hugs. Don't stop there. Don't stop at the free hug and think you've done something powerful for Jesus. You might've started something powerful for Jesus, but if you don't gain relationship with people, demonstrate over time, the love of Jesus, then it's just gimmicky. You know, anyone can hand out water bottles and say, I'm going to hug you for Jesus. How about you get engaged in their life? How about you look at the people that you might be interacting on a day-to-day basis already, rather than doing these token offerings that that may offer confusing or mixed messages to people who are needing Jesus in their lives. Maybe just look at who God has in your life right now, who represents in that community and just begin to cultivate relationship with them. Hmm. It might be a lot more difficult, you know, than, than showing up where you don't have to explain yourself or live your life over time with that person. And then, and then, you know, have to have the hard conversations. Like anyone can do the altruistic demonstration, but can you live life and deal with the tension that comes when they say, well, do you agree with me or don't you? And then have to wrestle out those dynamics. Like, you know, one thing that sort of applies in this is, and I think I might've shared this in one of the previous episodes. I went to my brother's wedding. My brother is gay. He is married to a man. 
Um, they've adopted three kids. We have a good relationship, but we have a very tense relationship sometimes because we contend with our disagreements and we contend with, with um, our theological disparities. And when I went to the wedding, when my wife and I attended it, we attended it having had a lot of very uncomfortable, very difficult emotional conversations as to the context as to why we were going. We were going because we loved them. We were going to demonstrate that no matter what choice they made, we would love them. We were going because we were going to demonstrate we were committed in relationship to them. I remember the backlash that you got from the Christian community because of that. And still do sometimes. It was tremendous. Yeah. And I, I just remember thinking kind of like I was in, I don't, I don't know, because, you know, I saw these two, two opposing realities and I was just like, whoa, this is intense. Yeah. Like the church is going in on itself and yeah canceling and, you and and that was oh, that yeah. was hard oh that yeah. Was really yeah i got you know quote canceled by a ministry i'd served for 10 years not not portland fellowship but a, another ministry we were associated with would not invite me to things would not endorse the speaking engagements i was doing with their own ministries that i was speaking at i think they probably still do they still do i haven't received any invitations yeah, i mean there's, so there's consequences for mm. Doing it right. <laughs> Doing what the Holy Spirit puts on your heart. Yeah. You know, it's like I take comfort in when Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Like Jesus did it right and found enemies on either side, on the religious community and in a community that, that you know, I, you know, uh, full sinners. You know? <laughs> he wasn't loved by everybody. Um, but, you know, it's, it is consequential. It is difficult and it is difficult in relationship. And so, I would say, yeah, go, hold out your sign and then follow up with the people that you hug, get their number. Say, can I take you to coffee? Can I hear your story? Can I hear where you've been hurt? Can I offer to repent on behalf of the church for how badly you've been treated? And can I also like have to really exist in the tension that Jesus does have words to say about sexual sin? And I, I feel on the Lord to say something in Janelle indulge me for a moment. And if you don't like this, edit it out. It's fine. Edit it out. Um, I'll indulge you. you. Indulge me. So we use the term sexual brokenness. And I know that that has been a trigger for people. Mm. And it's been a trigger for my brother. It's been a trigger when I've gone and spoke places um, because the, the feeling is, how dare you call me broken? You know? And it's like, let me level the playing field. We are all broken. When I say sexual brokenness, I refer to every manifestation in humanity that is not the will and the intention of what God has set out for his plan for sexuality. And so heterosexual audience, I'm speaking to you. Like when I begin my own journey out of, out of a homosexual orientation and a relationship and surrendering it to Jesus, I was looking around to try to find an example of what to follow. And honestly, a lot of it looked a lot like what I experienced in a gay relationship. And that did not feel like what Jesus was calling me to. He did not call me from one lust, broken struggle to another, which is a different target mm -hmm. and having to contend with, okay, well, Lord, what is your plan for sexuality? I found that, you know, there's very, there were very few examples for me to follow of what it looked like to be sexually whole. And so we're not saying sexual brokenness is a term just to label the gay community or the LGBTQ community. We're saying that all of us are broken. And when we minister to that reality, we minister to the state of fallen humanity that must find its hope and regeneration in Jesus.
So I just want to clarify that yeah. in case anyone felt singled out. No, I'm pointing at everybody, yeah. myself included. That's good. And what do you say then to, I'm obviously you had critics when you went to your brother's wedding. What do you say to those people who say, well, you're endorsing it. I mean, I, I know I've listened to very prominent preachers oh, yeah. uh, say that they would never go to a gay wedding because that would be like uh, saying that that sin is okay. <sighs> So what, how did you respond? Um, yeah. You know what's crazy? Kasten is showing up here. She's uh, going to be here. What up, girl? Get here. it. She's Come awesome. on, bring her in. She yeah. can join. <laughs> I told her. We're having a good talk. I know. Hey, Kasten. Hey. Hey, hey girl. Hey. hey. How? <laughs> we can't my face. So, I'm so glad you're here. Yes. I would show my face, but I got a new computer and I don't have a webcam yet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> don't she call me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, really... your picture is delightful, yes, so we, is. we appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Kasten, yeah. this is Cynthia Beaudry and Drew Berryessa. Uh, they both are part of a ministry now where they talk with the church about how to engage people uh, who are different from them. So we're having a really good conversation. Oh, that's so cool. I'm so glad y'all are doing this. I, I'm really glad. I, I, I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. thank you. We're so grateful. Do you have some specific questions you want to ask them, knowing what uh, their background is? Honestly, I would love to just listen and go from there, to be honest. I, I don't know what the conversation was. So I'll okay. just That's totally listen fair. along, <laughs> observe. I just got off work. I've been working since 8, so I'm a little tired, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm excited oh, to be here. Awesome. We were. I was just asking Drew what he says to people um, when he tells them that he went to his brother's uh, gay wedding, mm -hmm. and um, there's criticism from from Christians. Mm -hmm. So he was just oh, yeah. about to talk about that. I think. Yeah, Wait, the criticism. I want to answer that. Hold on. Oh, sorry. go ahead. I know you asked him that question. I'm gonna answer for you. Oh, okay. Him. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, go for it, Cynthia. <laughs> no, I'm just. You know, we like one of the things we say is we take our cues from Jesus, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I just. When Jesus was walking in the unction of the Holy Spirit, following the the will of the Father, he, he made the religious leaders mad. He sure did. And it, so, to me, if you're not making one of some a, a, a Pharisee mad, a religious leader mad, then I'm like, are you really, are you really doing the walk like Jesus? Because yeah. he always made somebody mad. He did. He did. Okay, sorry. No, no, you never, word. girl. You never apologize for bringing your Puerto I'm a little sassy. In here. Come on. She's this from the Bronx. I, yeah. This is why I hired her. I need some spice in my life. <laughs> you know, Jesus made, he made people mad all the time. He sure did. Mm -hmm. And so I think the accusation is like this, um, you know, if you show up, you're endorsing and you're celebrating. And, you know, for me, I find that to be so incredibly, incredibly short-sighted and incredibly judgmental and incredibly um, just arrogant. Like, can we, can we be in a place and not, be celebrating something. And I'm like, one of the responses I give all the time is like, I have known so many parents who are attending the heterosexual marriage of their child and completely disagree with the choice that the child has made. And they're there. And it's not, it's clear they're they've not hidden the fact that they're not thrilled about the wedding, but it's their child. And so they've chosen to be there because they love their kid and they're going to be there for their kid. And they're going to demonstrate that they love their kid. And even though they might not agree with their choice, they're going to relationally show up. And so there's that aspect to it of like sitting in a chair does not mean you're celebrating. It means you're present. Mm. And 
it means that you're incarnational, that you are demonstrating the commitment to the relationship to show up in a difficult circumstance. If you are in disagreement to the wedding, you you can go um, and you can demonstrate your love. I, I think that one of the things that I challenge Christians on all the time, those that are like saying, well, I'm going to go because I'm going to show up. And I'm like, okay, have you had a conversation with the people about where you stand? Like, have you, cause it can absolutely be in like construed as endorsement. If you've not been brave enough to have a conversation with the person in love about where you stand and what you believe. Now, my brother and I had endless conversations about I mean, he, he would have to be blind, deaf, and, you know, dead to not know where I stood on the issue because he's watched my entire life and my testimony unfold in front of him. He was the best man in my wedding. He knows exactly who I am and what I, and what I believe. He also knows because we had conversation after conversation after conversation that the reason we would go, the, the reality of my brother and I had all these conversations and, and it was very clear to him. It was very clear to him where we stood, that we stood dignify like showing him dignity respect and love and that we were showing up and being a part of the wedding not you we i couldn't be his best man i couldn't stand up there because that to me would cross into the line of endorsement and celebration which i in my conscience i could not do but can i love and show respect and dignity and and um uh, affirmation to him as a human being yes yes i can and should and if I want any place in their life to be able to um, have relationship, then I, then I really do have to consider my choices and how I engage. And in all honesty, I pray that someday that my brother or his partner come to a place of conviction and surrender to the will of Jesus in this. And if they ever reach that point, what I never want to be in the way is the obstacles of how I've treated them. Mm-hmm. that I haven't shown up and, and made myself uncomfortable for the sake of relationship, that I haven't demonstrated over and over again, that there is nothing that they can ever do that will make me not love them and show up in their life. And so we went and we even went the day before and helped set up chairs and tables and, and, you know, did everything we could to bless them. Because also I pray that my brother gets everything he wants in life. I pray that, the, that, that if he wants to adopt kids, he gets to adopt kids. Because honestly, just like the woman at the well, I don't think these things will satisfy him. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there will come a moment in time where, you know, he'll come to this point of recognizing that everything he pursued, just like anyone else in any other struggle, that nothing actually satisfies but Jesus. Mm-hmm. And if we withhold parts of our life that the Lord has said, this is sin, um, if we withhold the authority and lordship of Christ in those places, then we're going to end up eventually being dissatisfied or empty. And I don't want any self-righteous judgment or, or, you know, dogmatic religious way that I prevented myself from showing up in his life in a place and time that might've made me uncomfortable uh, to be a roadblock or a stumbling block for him to be able to come back to Jesus or come back in relationship to me. Because I know if he does come to a place of conviction in this, it is massively consequential Mm -hmm. and he stands to lose a lot. But what I don't ever want him to think is that I would be standing there in judgment saying, I told you so. Instead, I want him to know that I have arms open wide, ready to receive him and grieve with him over the loss. Because, 
you know, no matter what it is that we put in our life, you know, sin still is something that when we lose, we grieve because it held a place. And, you know, I think Jesus did that for people. I think that he understood the gravity and the magnitude of, of the things that we put in our lives instead of him or, or in disobedience to him. And I don't think he begrudges us the loss of those things. I think he meets us with compassion and mercy and then fills us with a good thing. So all that to say, that's, that's my answer to your question. That's great. Um, Catherine, do you have any thoughts on that before I ask the next question? You know, I just have a comment. I don't have any follow-up questions, but Drew, I just think your ability to love others speaks volumes. And I think that really speaks Hmm. to me because I feel like we're lacking in that as a society lately and as a church lately. I think you all know what I mean. So I really appreciate your outlook, really. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. So Cynthia, Andrew, uh, I'll ask you both this question. Um, There's a very strong narrative in our culture, in in the world, uh, that to love somebody, you must affirm what they believe or their lifestyle, especially when it comes to sexual identity. Hmm. Um, We've talked a little bit around uh, the hard things within the Christian church body um, and some of the the problems that the church has had in loving. Um, Have either of you in your journeys over the last 20 something years, um, have you ever been tempted by uh, the church's, uh, the pendulum shift to the acceptance, um, the affirming? Um, Because I know that it seems to be growing um, this oh, well, actually, we're going to affirm homosexuality as something that Jesus would embrace as well. And, uh, and God wouldn't actually, he didn't actually say this, like the Bible was changed in 1947, or whatever year, you know, like this kind of thing. That's a real thing. It's a real current that's moving through the church. Have either of you ever been tempted by it? Cynthia, you go first. I've talked a lot. No, I mean, um, I can't say that I have. So I don't feel like I have a, you know, a place to speak into that. Um, my husband, he's, he's, he struggled with, with same sex attraction. And I call it same sex attraction because it, it wasn't an identity that he adopted. It was a vulnerability that he had. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so my marriage and then my ministry to my family, um, I've, I've really been emboldened by the work of the Holy spirit to stay true to, um, the biblical narrative, but also be really excited about the hope and transformation that he has. So there's never been um, a temptation for me to adopt acceptance and um, affirmation because of the abundant life, the marvelous light that was my, that is and was my reality. Um, So I don't, I can't say that that's been a, I'm sure it has been for other people. Drew what has, has been something. for me. Oh, Drew yeah. has something to say about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that in my own struggle with my sexual orientation, it was definitely, definitely a, a, a struggle and a temptation to say, you right. know, yeah. like, God, can I just be okay with this? Because this is hard and I don't want to face a life of isolation or loneliness, uh, which is the only option I felt like I had if I followed Jesus, because, you know, there wasn't any internal sense in my head that, or my heart, that my orientation would change. And, you know, certainly God doesn't owe us healing 
we owes it, we owe him our allegiance. He doesn't owe us anything because he's already done enough for us with salvation and and all that. But um, I couldn't square up theologically with with what was being shared as that that uh, theological thought. It never it never passed muster as far as my my investigations into the, the into each dimension of those claims, whether it be the historical context claims or whether it be the translation claims or whether it be the like the really lazy one of like, well, the biblical authors just didn't know about, you know, sexual orientation back there. I'm like, well, the biblical author was God. So <laughs> if he didn't know, then we got a problem because then God doesn't know things. Um, and then I'll say this too, that then later in life, dealing with my brother and dealing with um, those that we've ministered to over the years who have embraced uh, a gay orientation, a trans orient uh, identity, like all these things, because I love these people, I have had moments where I'm like, I've grieved the fact that um, there is brokenness in the relationship. And it, you know, certainly if the claims of pro-gay theology were true, then there would be no, no problem to embrace their, their identity and their behavior. But unfortunately, that also then means that I have to embrace a whole other slew of, of uh, sinful manifestations and sexuality that I cannot embrace. Because it's not just that, I think we get so focused on what, what we think, what the six verses that, that prohibit behavior of homosexuality or homosexual behavior in the Bible, or even the references of uh, transgender identification in the Bible, that they are there, and there's a few of them. Um, but like, there's also so many other sexual broken manifestations that if you throw out, if in order to legitimize those, we have to discard what God has said sex is for and the context of which God blesses sex. And, you know, that is in the context of marriage. And then we have to then accept really other broken forms of sexual expression that I am not willing to call good in God's heart or, or will. And so then I have to go back again to what did God affirm and what has God tried to teach us through sexuality? Because outside of the few verses that specifically prohibit homosexual behavior, there is a theme in scripture from start to finish that, that I call sacramental. It is, you know, physical realities that God is putting in creation to point to a divine reality that is far bigger and far more powerful and far more beautiful than just don't do that or do this. God is painting a picture in sexuality, not just in marriage. Marriage is great. And marriage is wonderful, but so is celibacy. And so is the expression of a single life given to Jesus. It's just as valuable. And, you know, when we look at the whole of what sexuality communicates in the gospel, I would have to disregard it. And I'm not willing to disregard it because, you know, in Ephesians 5, when Paul says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united together with his wife in one flesh. And this is a profound mystery. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and his bride the church. You know, God is teaching us something about his relationship with us in what he paints as his will for, for marriage and for sexuality. And that points to such a beautiful reality and a beautiful hope that we are going to experience in glory. That if I were to throw out his prohibitions, it also means that I have to throw out his promises. And I am not willing to do that. And it is so central to the gospel that I don't even know what the gospel would be without it. Mm -hmm. Preach. And I wanted to, I mean, how can I go after that, Drew? 
you can. You can. Um, Go so ahead. Going back to it, it's not been one of my vulnerabilities to deviate from the biblical narrative. And that's because, you know, one of the things I've wrestled with is the church is always known, not always, I hate speaking in absolutes. The church can be known for what it's against mm-hmm. more than what it's for. And I've just been so wrapped up to finding out what are you for, God? What is marvelous light? What is abundant life? Show me what that is. And being so wrapped up into that, that, um, that any other narrative is just, is, is not as appealing to me. It's just, um, but like you were saying, Drew, the, the, the reality, the, the eternal and supernatural reality, that's what we get to lean into. Yeah. And that's, that's beautiful and hopeful. Yeah. I want to be a part of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He's in the business of life giving. So you guys, uh, going back to Kasten's original question, why do Christians say they accept Jesus, but judge everyone more than Jesus did? Or do you think that they do? I'd love for each of you to answer that question. Cynthia, ladies first. <laughs> you know, I was praying about that because it's it's such a good question. And I'm, I'm grateful for her openness and receptivity to even engage in this difficult question and, and to have, you know, a, 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 a different voices and, and perspectives to speak into that. So I, I was just grateful for the question. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> I was just praying about it. I was like, Lord, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. And and the thing that I just um, wanted to, to show up and engage, Caston's um, heart was, you know, I, I'm I'm not gonna have the perfect answer. I know that sounds like a cop out, but um, I just remember there's a saying that says people will not remember what you say as much as how you make them feel. And so I was like, Lord, I don't really have much to contribute to this conversation, but I have a bunch of love for Kasten, for the questions that she's asking, for the spiritual journey that she's on. And and so I'm just grateful um, to be present and engaged in that question. Um, it's a hard one and honestly one that I'm still wrestling with myself. And that's one of the things that um, we th- I feel, Drew and I both have talked about this, that the antidote to judgmentalism and, and self-righteousness is humility. And that's something that I pray that <laughs> that we all um, pursue. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing. This is why I hired you, Cynthia, to be <laughs> my partner in crime, because Lord, that was beautiful. Um, I think that in full agreement to that, I think that um, I think that there is definitely not all Christians, but I think that there is a loud faction of Christians that represent exactly what she sees. And I know that I've engaged with people in the gay community who've asked the questions too, of like, why are Christians hateful towards gay people? And when I say they aren't, and they go, well, I've seen the signs. I think my, my best response to that is like, I don't, I can't say that they're not Christians, although I can say that they're not being very reflective of Jesus. When we stand in self-righteous judgment of sins that are easy to pick on because they're not the ones we struggle with. You know, they're, the, 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 when I ever heard 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 preached in the church growing up, um, first off, I never heard verse 11 quoted, which is the redemptive passage of that, that scripture. But there's a list of sins that, that, the, that Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians addressing the church say, 
you know, if you practice these things, if basically, if you pursue a life based on these sins, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, which is not a condemning statement so much as it is a observational statement that when we give our hearts to sin and we call sin good and right, inevitably the outcome we reach is that we're not aligned with Jesus. And we're not, we're not, our, our consciences are seared. Our hearts are, are like shut down to the voice of the Lord and the conviction of the Holy spirit, because we refuse to be obedient to him. And so that natural consequences, eventually we just depart the Lord's presence because we have no love for him. We have no pursuit of him. That being said, um, the church has been so willing to point at the few sins in that list that they don't naturally or maybe um, statistically identify with as much. So, you know, the the 90% or 95% of the church that is heterosexually oriented don't identify with or feel vulnerable to homosexual sin. So it's real easy to point the finger at that one, but Lord knows we're not going to call up the gossip to say, you know, how dare you gossip? Because that's so familiar to people and it's so relatable. And so I think that part of the problem is just a lack of compassion and capacity to understand why a person struggles the way they do. And that's just a lack of humility. And it's a lack of, um, a lack of love and understanding and empathy. And, you know, we really need to fight for empathy in our, in the church and and recognizing that Jesus being tempted in every way, which does not like, it doesn't necessarily mean he was homosexually tempted, but it doesn't exclude it. You know, Jesus, who was the only one in all of humanity, because he was fully man who knows the full breadth and strength of temptation, because he's the only one that always resisted it. So he's the one who knows exactly my own heart and, and why I would be tempted to do the things I do because he resisted temptation to its full strength. And if we can begin to understand and try to relate, try to relate, relate to the identity struggles and the, and the orientation struggles and the, the, um, the, the consequence of sin where so many of the people I've ministered to over the years have experienced sexual defilement and had sexuality awakened well before they had ever understood what it meant. And, you know, the people that, you know, felt so uncomfortable in their own skin and their own gender, partly because the church has adopted as biblical ideas of masculinity, things that have no biblical basis for masculinity or femininity. Like there, there's stumbling blocks that we have put in the way of people And because maybe we feel more culturally acceptable as masculine or feminine, and therefore don't struggle in our own sin, in our own skin, can we for a moment put ourselves in the position of someone who might feel so incredibly uh, unfit or as a failure in their own gender, can we begin to understand that struggle and how it would feel to constantly be feeling like we don't belong or don't fit or don't measure up. And then of course, combine that with a world that will tell us every day, the reasons why and the solution to it. And Cynthia hit on something a little earlier that, you know, we want to be known what we're for, not what we're against. I think one of the biggest tragedies in how the church has engaged contemporary culture is that we are very moralistic when it comes to sexuality and gender, but we don't have, we have not really truly engaged the reasons why God calls us to what he calls us to. So we are very much in the whole, because the Bible says so, rather than understanding why the Bible says it. Hmm. Now, in the absence of purpose, 
the world is giving purpose every day on sexuality and gender. And as we know from the physical world, a vacuum will not stay empty. As we know, Jesus said in the spiritual world, if you cast a demon out of a person, but don't fill it up with the Holy Spirit and bind it up, that demon's going to go out and get seven of its uglier friends. This is a true paraphrase of the Bible. <laughs> and we'll fill that person up worse than before. And we know Proverbs 27, 7 says, to him who is well-fed, honey is not sweet or desirable, but to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet because a vacuum does not stay empty. And you know, in the lack of purpose, we have surrendered to the purposes the world gives for sexuality. And it's understandable why, because to the starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. And that is more of an indictment against the church and our, and our lack of comfortability and intentionality and understanding sexuality in terms of theology. It is a crying shame that in most Bible college educations, there's not a single hour given to understand sexuality biblically and theologically. Morally, sure, don't do this, don't do that. But why? We give more time and attention to how and when and if the rapture will happen and how many toes the Antichrist will have and whether or not healing happens today. You know, and whether or not, like, we give so much time and attention to things that don't actually have practical application for the daily life of the believer. But because I travel the country and speak to pastors and Christians all the time, I ask pastors, how often do you face questions of sexuality in your church office? And they, with crossed eyes, you know, like, oh, Lord, every day. And how much did your Bible college education, whether it be a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, or a doctoral degree, prepare you for those questions? And the answer is not one bit. And that is an indictment against the church. No wonder, no wonder we're struggling to understand. No wonder we're struggling to incarnate Christ's teachings on this because we haven't valued it. Mm -hmm. That's my long-winded answer. Sorry. You never said what verse 11 was in 1 Corinthians 6. Yes. And I shall know. Sorry. Now. Is that okay? Can I go ahead? Well, whether you can or you can't, you did. So... <laughs> Easier to ask forgiveness and permission sometimes, I suppose. So, you know, in, in the teachings on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it was always, do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? All the long list of sins, including homosexual offender. And two words in the Greek that describe that, both the passive and the active uh, relationship. And there's a whole other podcast for that, you know. But um, you'll be back on here, I'm I'll sure. I'll be back on here someday, I'm sure. Um, but verse 11 was this, and it was the most life-giving and hopeful thing I think I've ever heard but that's what some of you were, but you were washed and you were justified and you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God, because Christ does not leave us where he finds us. He takes us as we are, but praise God, he doesn't leave us there. Yeah. Keston, I'd love to hear you, uh, your thoughts here. And, and then I'll ask the final question and have one comment of my own. Um, there's so many questions that spark up in this conversation. I could literally sit here all night, so I'll keep it brief. As a, add a comment. Um, I think, Drew, you bring up such an important point. Like, as a church, we don't speak as a church or discuss as a church actual human issues. And I feel like we keep it taboo, but basically taboo. I don't know if that's the correct term, but. It's just like right. this magical thing that happens. And if it happens to you, you're on your own. 
Like, let's, why don't we right. talk about it as a church? I mean, we're the church, we're the body of Christ. We're together in this journey. But then again, like, isn't it a little hypocritical that, like, not one church class has anything about the different sins we'll deal with, the different sexuality issues we'll all have? It's because it's a part of the Christian right. walk. Paul talks about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I totally know mm-hmm. what you're saying you're saying and it's kind of frustrating so oh it's massively frustrating i girl <laughs> i am we could sit down over a cup of coffee and, um no i agree with you i think that it's heartbreaking yeah. and i think that for a lot of the pastors that i've you know engaged with over the years i don't think it's a lack of desire or a lack of seeing the same struggles that we're seeing they're just right. not equipped and you know it's that thing that's I think, why we started that's why you started that's why i did we'll do what i do yeah, yeah. and I think that, you know, that, that, yeah, I think the thing that, you know, often pastors go to is better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than open and open it and remove all doubt. You know, it's like, but that's not true in this regard because it's so consequential and there are answers to find. They're just, it's just uncomfortable for a lot of people. And, and primarily, I think that if we can go back to just even the earlier parts of our childhood and whether or not our parents were comfortable having the talk with us. And because most of the time they're not, that communicates uh, this emotional filter of how these talks go. And for me and for Cynthia, we just have decided to steer into this get of awkward and just have the conversations because it is, it is you know, uncomfortable and it is awkward, but they need to happen. And so, you know, I just, you know, we do it. And I think one of the hallmarks of how we communicate, we use humor and we, we have to, because it's so terrifying for people that if we engage it lightheartedly, but, but also very, very intelligently and, and relationally um, weighty, we can actually have these conversations and not die. You know, it's like, and we need to, because on the flip side, people are dying and people are dying in their faith and people are dying and going to hell and people are isolated from the life of God because they're so turned off by the fact that we're not addressing real things. And we're not engaging in difficult conversations and we're not taking responsibility for how we've done it wrong. And we need to, mm-hmm. and you know, Jesus holds us accountable to that and we will answer for it. So great question. And it's, you know, it's people that have your heart cast in to, to begin to engage in these hard and uncomfortable conversations. That's one of the things I'm so encouraged to be having this conversation with you because I see your heart and I see your passion and your frustration. And I know that that's what the church needs right now is voices and leaders um, who are going to be able to lean into that. And I think that you are definitely a part of that process. Yeah. And I think your heart reflects the heart of Jesus in this because, you know, the word of God says he hates injustice and this is an injustice. Right. For sure. Well, you guys, I'm so thankful uh, for your ministry. I can't even imagine. uh, Drew, I think it was the very first time you were on this podcast. You talked about truth and love and this tension. And you had this great quote, and I'm going to, you know, butcher it. But you basically said truth and love, like this tightrope of tension. We should all feel tense all the time. Um, And if you don't feel tense, you're not doing it right. So yeah. if you pray, please pray for these guys because I'm sure you're getting it on both sides. Um, and that is a lot of tension, especially for such a hot topic. Uh, 
I mean, you're not pleasing anybody except for <laughs> hopefully the Lord. And that's all that really matters, right? Right. Um, but uh, the final question, actually, real quick, how can people find out more about your ministry and your book, which, by the way, I was going to quote, but we didn't have time. Are we there yet? Um, I've started reading it, Drew. It's funny, just like you. Um, and it's also very honest and it's great. So, um, yeah. it's available on Amazon, um, is where I picked my copy up, but how can people find out more about you guys? Cynthia, you want to take it away? Sure. Um, I love social media. Like you, like I referenced Twitch. We're not on Twitch. However, we are on Facebook and we are on Instagram. Um, so you can find us on social media, living letter ministries, and, um, and we'll be more than happy to connect with you on there. Absolutely. And also our website, alivingletter.org. And um, you, there's multiple ways of connecting. We're also on YouTube, right? Are we? We got some YouTube videos. And uh, like you said, the book is on Amazon. It's also on Kindle and on Audible. And I read it. <laughs> oh. I know. <laughs> we also have our own podcast as well. Yeah, we have our own podcast. Yep, we, we just started really doing that. I know, right? Just recently. <laughs> just recently. It's a lot of snarky is what it is. And, yeah. you know, we call it the dialogue sessions and it's just mostly Cynthia and I and some we're hope as we're aspiring to have some guests as well. But um, yeah, so that's where you can find us and, you know, invite us to your church. We'll come and we'll speak. That'd yeah. be great. Yeah. Anyone in Chelan listening, let's make it happen. I'm uh, looking at you, Christian DeGosley. Who made this connection. All yes. right. Final question for both of you. Um, the Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love mm-hmm. of those four gifts that we can find in relationship with Jesus Christ. Which of them stand out to you the most in your life right now and why? Restoration, eternity, authenticity, or love? Mm. For me, it's authenticity. Uh just growing up in the gay community and growing up in the Bronx and Puerto Rican and not having a filter and just being real demonstrative with my personality, knowing that I had a place in the kingdom of God, like, give me some Jesus, yes, that I could just be honest and raw and, and that was okay, because he was going to meet me where I was at. And so for me, authenticity, I, I get to be Puerto Rican, sassy and love Jesus, and I get to love people as well. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. I also would say authenticity for, for a couple of different reasons. I think that authenticity invites honesty and invites, you know, a confession. And in the book of James, it says that you confess your sins one to another and you're healed. And so I believe authenticity is the gateway to rest- restoration. And it's also the gateway to love because, you know, so often in my own life, there have been sins I've struggled with that the enemy has constantly told me, well, if they knew, if they knew what you dealt with, they would reject you. Or if they knew what you've done, they would reject you. And so even though people offered me love and even the love of God, I wasn't able to receive it because in my, in my head, in my heart, my spirit, I disqualified it every time because it's like, well, well, but if they knew. And so for me, authenticity is that gateway to all of those experiences. And we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with one another, uh, the other believers in Jesus, because even if the risk of rejection or judgment is there, which it certainly is, and it certainly happens when it doesn't happen, when we're actually met with grace and we're met with, with love and we're met with the spirit of God, it's transformative. And I think on the flip side of authenticity, the root of authenticity, the root words are actually 
you know, where you are a reflection of the author's intent. Yeah. And so we, the word authenticity has been so hijacked by our culture to demean, you know, um, honest about where I am or being true self or being my true self. And it's like, but you know, my true self really truly is dependent on the author and the one who designed me to tell me who that is. And so authenticity demands that I go to God and I say, who do you say that I am? Like, who did you create me to be? And, you know, one of the things, and I'm so long-winded and I apologize, sorry, not sorry. It's good. So, you know, one of the things, you know, my name is Andrew. So I go by Drew, but Andrew means strong and manly. So I contended with that for a long time of just like, I don't think that I fit that. And I certainly culturally didn't feel like I fit that, but God know who God knew who I was. God know who I was when he made me. And so coming back to him and trying to understand what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a godly man? And truly understanding what that meant to God, not to culture, not to my own subculture, but to God. And then seeing that I qualified and I fit and I actually was a good man. And that, um, that only came from authentically, honestly contending with my own objections or my own struggles with that, but also going to the Lord and saying, okay, author of all creation, what does it mean to be a man? And so authenticity by and large, that's, that's what I'm, that's my jam. That's great. Well, Cynthia and Drew, I just want to thank you both for being here. This has been a really rich, nuanced, uh, bold and uh, grace filled, I hope, conversation just talking about authenticity, the hope for the world, uh, what we can find in Christ alone. Also, the hope for the church, you know, humility and grace and recognizing our own brokenness and what God has done for us. And um, I just really appreciate it. Thank you, Kasten, for the great question. I'm so glad you were able to be here for the final portion here. Um, oh, I can't hear you. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's because of you. You you instigated this. This I is know. good. I'm so I'm so excited. This is all you. <laughs> so until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.